So there'll be uh, two readings uh, tonight. Uh, the first one is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts, chapter 16. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in, in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatria, Tira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received those orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, 
there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for the lights, for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men! The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. The second reading is from Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. Let's pray. Father God, please would you give us uh, minds that are sharp to, to understand your word. And would you give us hearts that can recognize truth. And we pray, Father, that you would stir in us um, a trust in the Lord Jesus that rejoices in the gospel and a commitment, a conviction, a passionate desire to live for him with all of life that would give us a purpose and a joy that we all long for deep down. Amen. Matt spoke about uh, Emma Raducanu's um, sort of purpose, her dream uh, as a, from a very young age to, to win. Bill Shankly speaking about uh, sport in a, in a slightly more blunt, stark way, a few decades earlier, exposed 
I think an even more extreme version of her dream language when he said famously, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I'm very disappointed with that attitude. I can assure you it is much, much more important than that. The truth is, he's not out there. He's just reflecting the reality for an awful lot of us. For countless millions of fans, whether the team wins on Saturday, it matters. It matters as much as anything else in life. They live or die with it. Win and oh, everything is great in the world. Who cares what else is happening in life? Lose and they're just devastated. And incidents of domestic violence go up and drunken brawls ensue. I mean, who cares what else is happening in life, people think. So long as Liverpool or Arsenal or Accrington Stanley are about on a level these days, so long as they win, I don't care. I don't care. Now, not all of us uh, will care quite so passionately about 11 men kicking a bag of wind around, but all of us have our hearts tied to something. For all of us, there are, there are things that are, so long as that's going well, you know what, who cares what else is happening in life? Whether it's our finances, our family, our career, our relationship, if, if those things, if they are happy and flourishing, then you know what, I don't really care what else is going on. And Paul's letter to the church in Philippi urges us to tie our hearts to the progress of the gospel, the message about Jesus Christ, to that great cause of people coming to know Jesus. Uh, we saw last week in the first 11 verses that um, the Philippians, the, the letter to the Philippians, it holds out a really attractive vision of life. We get the, the, the first indication that Paul is going to show us in this letter of Philippians how to live a life that is rich in purpose and full of joy. And whether you call yourself religious or not, that's what we're looking for, a life of purpose that we look back at the end and think, it was worth living my life. It made a difference. It mattered. And a life that along the way is marked by joy. And he says, look, the way to do that is to have a, a life that is devoted to the spread of the gospel and to working in partnership with others to do that. That's how to have a life of passionate purpose and rich joy, to have a, a life devoted to serving the gospel in partnership with others. Now, uh, today we're going to see uh, what it looks like to live that out in one sense. And also, just as importantly, why on earth? Why on earth do we keep saying that living for the gospel is the best way to live? And that's why we had the reading from Acts, as we'll see. Okay, firstly, uh, Paul rejoices in imprisonment because it helps the gospel spread. So turn back to, to Philippians 1. Now, Paul has told them in verses 1 to 11 how he feels about them, and now he tells them how it's going for him. And he confirms what they've already heard, which is that he's stuck in prison. But he doesn't launch into a pity party. He doesn't even beg them, please, would you pray that I get released from prison because I'm desperate to get out of here and preach the gospel. What he does, actually, is celebrate. And what he celebrates is that even being in prison has served to advance the gospel, and therefore it's been a good thing. Look with me at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. 
That doesn't sound like someone complaining about prison. Now, the word for the palace guard is the Praetorian. This is Caesar's elite bodyguards, the best of the best of all the Roman legions, 9,000 battle-hardened soldiers. Now, I don't think he means that, they, uh, that he's been in prison so long or that they cycle them through so quickly that every single one of those 9,000 soldiers has been on guard duty and so Paul has been able to share the gospel with them. I think what he's saying is that actually they've seen in him there's something about the, the way this, this Jewish religious scholar conducts himself. And there's something more importantly about the message that he has about some, some crucified Galilean peasant who he claims has risen again. Something about it is so utterly captivating that it has formed the gossip of battle-hardened soldiers. And they've all told each other about this Paul and his Jesus. It's an amazing thought. So Paul rejoices. He rejoices at being imprisoned in chains because it means a whole heap of people who just never, ever would walk into one of his church built meetings and hear about Jesus have heard about Jesus. And that is the best thing ever. Now, perhaps we're not overly surprised to hear Paul rejoicing about that. I mean, that's kind of Paul's thing, devotion to the gospel. But what is surprising is the impact that Paul's imprisonment has had on other people, on the ordinary Christians like you and me. Verse 14, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You might have thought, look, Paul being locked up, everyone else is going to think, whoa, hang on a minute, I'm going to think twice before I talk to my colleague on Monday and say, yeah, I was at church yesterday, or invite a colleague to Christianity Explored. Yeah, yeah, okay, Paul's in prison, hmm. But actually his imprisonment has made the rest more bold. Uh, he really emphasizes this. He piles up the words for courage, confident, dare, without fear. Now, I don't think it's so much the suffering in and of itself that makes everybody more bold, but the joyful courage of Paul to keep proclaiming Christ in the face of suffering. That's the thing that, that stirs up the others. Um, this is a picture of uh, a very, very happy-looking couple, ben Bishop, Archbishop Ben Quashi and his, life, his wife Gloria. You look at them and you think, they look like they have a good life. When you see people smiling like that, you think, I'd like to have their life. Uh, they've had um, Boko Haram militants break into their house, I think now on three occasions. His wife savagely beaten almost to death when he was away. Him beaten by Boko Haram. They've been shot at. Bombs have been placed. He is uh, the Archbishop of Jos in northern Nigeria, and over the past few years, he has conducted the funerals for literally thousands of Christians who've been slaughtered by uh, Boko Haram and Fulani Muslim militants. Millions more have been driven from their homes, and as I said, they have suffered terrible attacks to try and silence him and stop him preaching the gospel. But not only have they survived, but the amazing thing is, they remain just full of joy. It is worth listening to interviews with this man. There's a great podcast Simon Gillibo does um, with Ben Kwashi, or you can see on YouTube. He's just full of joy, and, and he resolved uh, to keep preaching the gospel. In a recent interview I heard, he said, <clears throat> how do I respond? No more fear. I am absolutely confident in God. I will be an unrepentant preacher, an apologist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I will not betray the trust of the missionaries who died to bring the gospel to Nigeria. We must live the gospel. Pray that out of our suffering will come the kind of faith that will be admired on earth and in heaven. Let's be fervent in preaching the gospel and living the gospel. So he and Gloria keep preaching. And they adopted 70 of the, uh, the orphaned children. And when that became too many, they basically built an orphanage for another 800. And they built a farm so there's something for them to do. And a zoo, slightly bizarrely, but, you know, why not? And he's just full of gospel joy and hope. Now, when you read... Or listen to just the first part of the interview and just hear of Christians being slaughtered just for being Christians. That doesn't make me feel bold, I've got to say, just to hear that people are suffering and being slaughtered. But when you hear that in the midst of the suffering, in response to the suffering, they are full of forgiveness and joy and proclaiming the gospel, that does make me want to stop being such a wuss and have the guts to speak to my friends. And it just, it works. I've seen it on a smaller, and perhaps that's too out there, on a smaller scale. At a previous church, we were going out before Christmas to sing Christmas carols and invite people in Wimbledon Town Centre. And there was a big crowd came to do it and uh, were willing to sing carols. When I said, great, we've got plenty of people to sing carols. We now need some people to, to hand out invitations and to talk to people on the streets, ask them, uh, would you like to hear about um, the good news of Jesus this Christmas? suddenly I've never seen people so keen to sing in a choir. It was incredible. And, t- I, and it was interesting. You hear, you know, I, I know quite a few people in Wimbledon. I, I, I might see colleagues. I might be laughed at. And then an 11-year-old girl, one of the dads had brought his 11-year-old daughter, she said, I'll do it. Uh, oh, you go to school in Wimbledon. You're going to see your classmates if we do this. And But she was up for it. And suddenly... Suddenly, about seven or eight others said, you know, if she's going to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> There's something about seeing courage in others when they're, when they're saying, you know, oh, I know I might be laughed at, but I'm going to do it. It just, it breathes strength and courage into the rest of us. And I want to say to each one of us, to those of us who call ourselves Christians, your willingness to stand up and to be known as a Christian, to speak about it, even though you get mocked or misunderstood by your colleagues or your course mates or your family your willingness to to be known as a christian even though oh, some people are going to call me a bigot just because they know i'm a christian your willingness to do that your decision to live openly and speak joyfully about jesus it breathes courage into everybody else and of course the flip side's true too you live a hidden christian life and keep quiet and you foster mediocrity but you can breathe courage into the rest So Paul rejoices. Paul rejoices in being in prison because it means the gospel's going out. Secondly, well, these are weird, these verses. Paul rejoices when the gospel spreads, even if it is designed to hurt him. I mean, what on earth is going on here? It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The the latter do so out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, well, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. (sighs) What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Now, it cannot be that these people preaching are preaching false 
things, not the real gospel message of Jesus, because Paul never rejoices in that. And in fact, in uh, Philippians 3.2, if you flick over the page, listen to what he says about people who are starting to come to Philippi to do that. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's not rejoicing at that point because these people are teaching things that aren't true about Jesus. So here are people who preach the true gospel of Jesus in chapter 1, but with false motives. The gospel they proclaim is not corrupted, but their hearts are. It's hard to work out. I mean, we're told it's, um, they're not motivated by God's glory, but by envy and rivalry. Perhaps they're more active than ever now in ministry, because with Paul in prison, here's an opportunity for them to take his place and have his influence to be the, the key figures as the gospel spreads and, and the key uh, leaders responsible for the Christians and enjoying that power and that prestige and that privilege. Who knows? Who knows? But it also seems that they hope that Paul will be tormented by it. Stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Now, it's not clear whether that just means make him feel miserable as he sees their ministry growing and, and the churches he's planted now coming under their leadership, or, or whether it's something even worse that, hey, look, if we boldly preach and cause trouble, he's much more likely to get in a lot more trouble when his trial comes before Caesar. I don't know which it is. We're not told. Because, frankly, Paul doesn't care. He doesn't tell us because he doesn't care. All he cares about is, hey, look, Christ being preached, so who cares? Which tells you that they're failing miserably. It doesn't sound like they've caused much trouble for him. He's like, hey, you're preaching the gospel. I don't care why. You're winning. I'm winning when you preach. Crack on. Now, let me say just two little things at this point. Firstly, don't be surprised at the sinfulness of Christian leaders. Now, there's been some, there's been some shocking abuse scandals recently. And some probably indicate that the, the supposed Christian leaders weren't genuine Christians at all. But it's, all, it's been revealed that much-loved gospel ministers were using their position to manipulate and abuse. And were actually much more vo- motivated, not by the glory of God and the good of others, but by the, uh, the possibility of exercising power over other people. Now, in our heads, many of us thought, hey, look, if someone's preaching the true gospel, they've, they've got to be a good person, surely. And we forget that actually sinful attitudes and behaviors are deeply ingrained in our hearts. They don't just wash off like dirt in the shower. Sin has to be dug out patiently, carefully over the years. Only Jesus is worthy of all your devotion and trust. Not me, not any other Christian leader. Expect at this church, the staff, the interns, the small group leaders, they're struggling with the same sins you are. Expect that. Now, you do have a right to expect that those in Christian leadership are living a genuine Christian life and that there are no gross hidden sins. You've got a right to expect that. But you've also got to expect that the temptations you're struggling with, where they're the same temptations we're struggling with. So be disappointed when Christian leaders fall, but do not be stunned. And please, please, please pray for one another and please pray for us. We desperately need your prayers. Don't be surprised at the sinfulness of Christian ministers. Secondly, don't discount the good that corrupt humans can do. 
Now, for some here, I know that there, uh, one or two of the abuse scandals recently have rocked us because we, well, we personally had benefited greatly from these people. They'd been formative in our Christian life. Perhaps we even became Christians through their preaching. And it makes us wonder, well, does the revelation that they used that they were actually driven by a desire to manipulate? Does the revelation that they abused people with their power, does that, does that mean that everything they taught me was worthless and empty? Not at all. It doesn't excuse their sin. We never, ever say, well, it's not so bad what they did because look at all the good. No, 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 what they did was wicked. It must be uncovered and it must be punished. But the gospel retains its power, and so the things they taught you still benefit you. That's why Paul can rejoice here. Because as wicked as the motivation of these people are, they're preaching the gospel. And that gospel has power to save people. If ministers had to be pure for the gospel to be effective, <laughs> there would be no church. Put it this way, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. So Paul rejoices when the gospel spreads, even if the intention was to hurt him. Okay, that's Paul's attitude. His heart's tied to something richer than the success of a football team or the progress of a career. So he has joy, whatever's happening to him personally, because the gospel's still going out. But it raises the question of why. Why on earth is Paul so passionately devoted to this gospel? Why does he care so little about his life so long as the gospel's going forward, so long as people are hearing about Jesus? What makes the gospel the thing that is better than anything else to tie your heart to? And that brings us uh, to Acts 16. If you want to flick back to that, um, Acts 16, I can tell you the page number in my Bible, but that's not much good for you. Anybody shout out the page number? 11111111. Just go with as many ones as you can find in the Bible and you'll get there. 11111. Now, this is Luke's eyewitness account. You can see uh, Luke has rejoined them. He's the author of Acts. Um, we've read verse 11 from Trash. We, so Luke has rejoined. And this is what happens when Paul first proclaimed the gospel in Philippi around uh, 10 or so years earlier. And he records the conversion of three very, very different individuals. Now his purpose, Luke's purpose, is not to, um, in Acts 16, let me tell you why the gospel's worth living for. Um, that's not his purpose. But as he tells us about these three individuals encountering Jesus, we see the power of the gospel. And it helps us to understand why, it illustrates why, Paul can speak like this and say, hey, who cares what else is happening as long as the gospel's going out? And I hope that it'll convince us. So the first person, Lydia, which shows that the gospel fulfills our deepest longings. So she's um, a local Jewish businesswoman. Paul always starts with the Jewish communities where he visits. And the message he proclaims, the gospel message about Jesus, the reason he starts at the Jewish uh, synagogues or the prayer meetings, if there weren't enough for a synagogue, is because the gospel message of Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises God made in the Old Testament to the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But those promises, they're not just, well, here's, here's some things that are only of interest to one particular uh, ethno-religious group in the ancient Near East. Now, God's promise was that he would work through this one people to bring blessings to all people. See, ever since, uh, ever since the first humans rebelled against God at the start of human history, they didn't just 
cause trouble for the Jewish people, but for all people. Sin, misery, conflict, corruption, and death came into the world. And ever since that happened, we've longed, all humans have longed, for someone to undo that. Someone to heal the human heart from the selfishness and the perversion and the petty pride and the ugly prejudices. Someone to to heal the world of the brokenness, the the disease, the warfare, the famine, the the racism, the injustice. Someone to, to stop the misery of death. And the gospel is the good news to all people that God has answered that human longing. The someone is Jesus. His death and resurrection defeat evil and one day soon he'll return to make everything new. It's no wonder that Paul lives for the gospel because in the gospel, the message of Jesus is the answer to the deep universal longings of every human being for an end to misery and for a return to justice and life. Well, the second person, the slave girl, um, she could hardly be more different from wealthy, independent Lydia. She's a slave. She's under the power of some kind of evil spirit. Um, we read in, in verses 16 and, and 17. And she's also under the power of her masters who use her affliction to make money. She's used, she's abused, she's enslaved under a miserable power. But Paul, in the name of Jesus Christ, sets her free. Verse 18, finally Paul became so annoyed, he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, most people are not possessed of an evil spirit in the way that girl was. But that slavery to an evil power that rules her is a picture of our sin. It's interesting, Jesus says in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin owned, mastered by sin. You see, sin is not just individual acts we do. I I did a sin. I committed a sin. It's a power that rules over us. Now, we feel that in our hearts when we act compulsively. We do stuff we know is wrong and we resolve not to, but we just do it again and again and again. It seems to rule us. Sin is also the power that rules over us because it determines our destiny. You see, as long as we're ruled by sin, our eternal destiny is to be cut off from God forever. Cut off from all his goodness, his blessing, his love, his happiness, his life. Because we are owned by sin and and therefore we are not able to be with a holy good God. But Jesus sets us free. I guess we all saw the, the pictures as the final flights out of Afghanistan left Kabul airport packed with desperate people. You, you could see if you zoomed in the, the relief on some of the faces as they took off. But then you just saw the joy when they landed and realized, I'm under a different power now. I'm no longer under the power of the Taliban. They have no power over me anymore. I'm free. Extraordinary to see. The message of Jesus, the gospel, is like those flights. It rescues us from the dominion of darkness, Paul says in Colossians, the ruling power of sin, and brings us safely into the kingdom of the Son, Jesus, the kingdom of freedom and light and love and life. That's why Paul lives for the gospel, because the gospel is, it's freedom from the power of sin. And lastly, the last person that is converted in this little opening in in Acts 16 is the jailer, most likely a retired Roman soldier. And as as he knelt 
trembling before Paul and Silas in verses 29 and 30. He realized he'd mocked, he'd beaten, he'd chained up a representative of the living God before whom he would one day stand for judgment. And in fear and desperation, he cries out, what on earth am I to do? What have I got to do to make this right? How can I atone for, for the stuff I've done wrong? How can I make up for my sin? What do I have to do to be saved from God's judgment? How can I be saved? Paul's answer, <laughs> nothing. You don't do anything to achieve salvation. Verse 31, Paul replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and all your household is powerful for all people. Trust in what Jesus has done, in his death and resurrection. It takes the punishment in full for sin and opens the way to eternal life for all. See, when we stop kidding ourselves, I'm all right because I look out and I see those evil Taliban people and I can turn on the news and see all sorts of evil things happening. When we stop looking around and comparing and we look up to the holy God, yowzers. When we recognize the way that we've ignored, even mocked our creator, the way we've used, hurt the people that he's made in his image and loves, then we realize, I'm in trouble. I need saving. Now, usually we drown out the thoughts and distract ourselves with busy lives. But if we have the courage and the honesty to look squarely at the facts of who God is and who I am, and what I deserve, then like the jailer, we'll cry out in desperation, what must I do to be saved? And that, when you finally reach that point of reality, that is the point at which the gospel becomes the greatest news of all time. The truth grounded in historical facts, not hopefulness, but historical facts that Jesus, God the Son, became a man and died on the cross to take the punishment for my sin in my place so I don't have to. That through Jesus, God can declare you right, good and acceptable because Jesus has taken your sin and your guilt and your shame. That through him, he gives you eternal life. See, Acts 16, this, the record of what happened when Paul first went to Philippi and preached about Jesus, it tells you why Paul, when he writes to the Philippian church, says, I don't care what's happening in my life so long as the gospel's going out. Because this gospel is the answer to, it fulfills the whole Old Testament, all the universal longings of humans for a saviour. It's freedom from the power of sin. It's salvation from the judgment of God and eternal death. Okay, what are we to do with that? I think there are two very obvious implications from what God has said to us tonight. Trust in Jesus and get involved. Trust in Jesus and get involved. Firstly, put your trust in Jesus. If you've not done it before, then do it tonight. What must I do to be saved? There's nothing you've got to do. Just put your trust in Jesus. He's done everything. Will you accept? You can walk out of here knowing absolute forgiveness, freedom from guilt and shame and slavery to desire, and the promise of an eternity stored up for you that is beyond anything that you can imagine in your wildest dreams. Put your trust in Jesus. Well, for those of us uh, who already trust in Jesus, go deeper in that trust. Well, in one sense, that just happens as we, 
as we live longer in the Christian life, because the, the longer I'm a Christian, I don't feel um, more virtuous. To be honest, I, the more I learn about God's perfection and the more I see my own corruption, the more I'm amazed that God would save me. The longer you live, the more you experience God's goodness in the gospel. But it also happens that gospel delights, that deepening trust, as we grow in our understanding of the gospel. So you'll never, you'll never share Paul's rich gospel passion if you don't share Paul's rich gospel understanding. So make time, invest time in reading books that stretch your brain and stir your heart. I mean, don't tell me you haven't got time. <laughs> do an inventory of what you actually spend spare time doing. Uh, we all have time for the things we want to do. Do this. Books that take you deeper into the gospel and the heart of Jesus. Oh, there's lots. Uh, talk, to, uh, talk to other Christians here, especially ones who you think you seem to be joyful. Uh, talk to them. But let me just suggest two that have helped uh, people a lot recently. Um, at the more theological end is uh, The Whole Christ, Sinclair Ferguson. It's a really deep dive into understanding what it means that God saves us apart from anything we've done. It's fabulously rich and deep. It'll stretch you intellectually, but it'll also amaze you at how good God is. Uh, the second book is Invisible, because um, <laughs> I forgot to bring it. Um, Jesus, Gentle and Lowly, but I'm going to hold up my hand as if I'm holding the book. But anyway, let's not do that. They're Jesus, Gentle and Lowly, a number of people have read. It's, a, it's less um, stretching intellectually. It's more um, a deep dive, uh, a number of short pastoral chapters that are just a deep dive into how good Jesus is to those who are struggling and sinful. I have to say, at a time when I was feeling particularly weary, Reading the first few chapters of that was like diving into a cool pool on a hot day. It is just delightful. Uh, Jesus, gentle and lowly, and the whole Christ. But talk to others. But make the time to dig deep into the gospel. Secondly, get involved. Get involved. Get involved in sharing the gospel. Now, not all of us will do it um, full-time as Paul did and some do today. Not all of us will be equally gifted at the actual speaking bit. But all of us can have a go. As we uh, heard from Psalm 107 earlier in the summer, all of us can at least tell our story of what God has done in my life. You're allowed to do that these days. So do it. And no one knows your friends, your family, your course mates, your colleagues, as well as you do. No one is better placed to tell them about Jesus. Why not, uh, for those who would call ourselves Christians here tonight, why not talk afterwards? Who are the two people I'm, I'm going to pray that I get an opportunity to speak to this week? Perhaps invites to the Christianity Explored starting that we were hearing about on Mondays. Which two people am I going to pray about and try to speak to? Now, there are other ways, of course, to be involved beyond, beyond actually speaking. Uh, we can all give money to church to support gospel work. We can all pray for gospel work. Using the church prayer diary is a, is a great starting point. We can pray for Christianity Explored course. We can pray for the people going along. And we can encourage one another to have a go, to keep going. And if you know you need help being more brave and courageous to speak, then, well, then read and listen to podcasts and interviews with Christians who are boldly living for Jesus in difficult circumstances, so that you will become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. But the more you invest yourself in something, 
or someone, the more your heart will be tied to it. So invest yourself in the greatest cause of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that is a cause more important than football and genuinely more important than life or death because it's about eternal life and eternal death. Live this short, short life devoted to the eternal gospel and your life will have been well lived, whether it's lived in freedom or in prison like Paul or unemployment or poor health or any other earthly disappointment. If your life is devoted to the gospel, it will be a life of purpose and of joy. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that in the gospel is salvation and freedom and fulfillment. Father God, please, would you help us to dive more deeply into the gospel and to live more wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus. We ask this for our good, for the good of those who don't yet know Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.